Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This morning, uh, looking at Ephesians 2, I'll read from verse 14 to 18. And I want to ask the question that this verse raises. It talks about breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. And of course, the the dividing wall here is a reference to a very specific wall in the temple that was the wall between the holy place and the holy of holies. The wall was representative of the law. It was representative of the division between God and humans, but it was also representative of the division between Jews and Gentiles. And so in this verse, Paul describes Christ as bringing peace between people and God when they're able to get beyond the law to love. And I presume this is as true for us today. That is, I'm going to claim we still have the same problem and we still need the same answer. We cannot see the world through the lens of our law any more than the Jews could see the world through their law or through our constitution, our borders, our police, our armies. Because in doing so, we define ourselves through that which Paul calls hostility. And this hostility is what is undone. It's what is destroyed in Christ. So let's read together 2, 14 to 18 of Ephesians. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so Paul depicts the law as giving rise to hostility here in Ephesians. In Romans, he describes the law as the impetus to sin. He says, I would not have known what covetousness was apart from the command, thou shalt not covet. In Corinthians, he tells us the letter of the law kills, it's deadly. The law, he says in Galatians, was never meant to be an end in itself. It is a tutor, a kind of guide, leading us or pointing us to Christ. And so many times when Paul is referring to the law, he means the Jewish law, but other times he just seems to be talking about a universal law or law in general. We know that in traditional societies, the law of the tribe or of the group was immutable, unchangeable. 
And it determined every aspect of life. And it was presumed the gods or God were behind the law. So whatever law we're talking about, we need to see that there's two edges to it. That there's a hostility to the law. Of course, some are protected under the purview of the law. Others who fall outside the law are punished by it. And so, for example, and I'm using the Jewish example here as just the way that law functions. The Jewish law and the formation of the Jewish people cannot be extracted from one another. The Jews, you know, think of circumcision, think of the laws marking Jewishness. Those laws determine who Jews are or even what a Jew is. And of course, in establishing the Jews, we have to understand the Jewish law is not adequate for universal justice because the very nature of the law is that there are those who are inside and those who are outside. There's the Gentiles who are punished. They're not protected by the law. And of course, what I'm saying and what Paul is saying, I think, is the Jewish problem ethnocentrism, exclusiveness, the notion that they alone are saved. That's the human problem. The Jewish error is the archetype of the universal error. It is to imagine that the law makes them right, makes them righteous, was it just righteous means to be made right, or that it establishes justice. And what we see is, well, no, that's not true. In fact, there is an inherent injustice that the law creates. To state it in Pauline terms, the human error is to imagine that life is in the law, that the law is an end in and of itself, and that we can gain salvation through the law. But the law is inherently unstable. It was never meant to be an end or a foundation in itself. And ultimately, Paul says, the law deals in death. It mets out death. And so the law may point to justice, but it also polices. And I, this is the word I want to use. It polices and punishes what falls outside the law. In Romans 7, Paul depicts the encounter with the law. You know, this is a problem between people, but it also is an internal problem. That the law gives rise to an internal hostility. That he's become hostile against himself, and there's a struggle within himself. Part of him is in the law, and part of him is being punished or policed by the law. Think guilt here. In Ephesians and Galatians, then, he depicts a social hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And you understand, Jews and Gentiles, that's just everybody. There's only two kinds of people in the Bible. And in the Gospels, think of the Roman and Jewish law. They converge in their agreement that killing Christ was a necessity. That the nation might be saved, according to to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so think here, the world's laws converge upon the person of Christ and say that he must be crucified. And of course, this is to tell us something about the very nature of law 
and how the law crucified they crucified the source of life in obtaining life through the law so on both a corporate and an individual level there is a structural problem which pertains to the law or to human orientation to the law and so what I want to do is turn this biblical insight and apply it to the law of the land this land what is the danger that we face in regard to the law to being citizens of this country isn't it also that there is an inherent hostility built into the law the wall of hostility that would keep you know literally a wall on the southern border that would keep some outside of this country that is not to be a wall that defines us as Christians or even the invisible walls that are put into place through the law and the police those are not to define us we might illustrate the problem by seeing two things that there's justice and then there is how some are punished in other words there's two aspects to the law and the core of the law always has its inside and outside you know in Greece when we get where we get a lot of our legal theory there is the polis and those in the polis are protected by the law but you understand most people are not in the polis it is for Greek males if you're a female if you're a child if you're a slave you're outside of the law and you're under the punishing effects of that lack of citizenship and what has happened in this country I'm afraid is that we've lost sight of this capacity in this country between 1965 and 1982 more Americans were put into prison than between 1865 and 1964 that is under Ronald Reagan that we have the closing of social services the shift in our understanding funding for mental hospitals health centers jobs programs early childhood education were either defunded or at least cut back and by 2016 18 states they were spending more on prisons than on colleges and universities activists who today call for defunding the police this is the argument Americans have been defunding social services as they're funding the police and in many states defunding public education and the more people who are not protected by the law by the social fabric that's what we mean the more the police have been deployed the inside of the law shrinks as the policing of the law expands this is a principle within us but it's a principle between us and so the recognition that this country's law and legal institutions not only privilege one group of people one race but in a sense just like the Jews it serves to establish racial divide actually creating race we now know because we understand that at a biological level race doesn't exist Jewish privilege and Gentile exclusion constitutes a hostility built into the wall you know the wall in the temple a concrete 
representation, but so too white privilege or receiving unworn advantage, black and brown exclusion from that privilege, it should not be a surprise to us who have this understanding of the structural and inherent problem, instability, in the law. That's what Christianity is all about. It is not those who receive the privilege, you know, the Jews, but it's the Gentiles, the slaves, the women, in Paul's description, in Galatians. Those who are made to suffer under the law, they notice, they see the disparities in the law. And as long as the Jews insisted on law keeping, this was the first problem of the church. They said you can't be a Christian if you're not a Jew. That is, you have to keep the Jewish law. Paul is saying, no, the law does not define us. In other words, they were having to relinquish their privileged position to be part of the church. I think that we too then have to recognize that relinquishment. And of course, part of that is to understand we're not defined by the law any more than the Jews were defined by the law. And so we don't exclude Gentiles or other people, the outsiders, from freedom. There, where there's freedom from the law, that's what it means. All people are welcome. And so I think as Christians, we should be highly sensitive to the hostile divisions incorporated into law undone by Christ. Those are two different ways of treating people. The notion that justice and righteousness, life, are enshrined in the law, perhaps even in this country, is the very definition of Paul's depiction of sin. If you believe that, that's over and against Christian belief. That's a deception, Paul says. That's the thing that the Jews were deceived by. They thought the law saved them. And we have to be aware, Christians are those who are no longer deceived by the sin in regard to the law. Now I'm afraid there is a Christianity that cannot begin to interact with this insight. That reads the Bible as mainly applying to a future world, a problem outside of this world, seeking to save from sin, but sin in this understanding has nothing to do with real world oppression but with the fact maybe that oh we stand condemned before God and they don't read sin then as applying to the oppression that we all bring in and experience in the world and in this understanding this mistaken understanding God is our problem and not the human situation or where the problem is understood to reside in human sinfulness. This is Calvin, this is Augustine. It's interior. Oh, you've got a heart problem. And the heart, in some way, is seen as disconnected from the circumstance, from the environment, from the community. So we do indeed have a heart problem, but we need to understand how to get to the heart. You know, does Christ come to change the human heart apart from the human circumstance? Or does he change the heart through the circumstance? That is, can hearts be changed apart from a holistic change 
in circumstance. And maybe, you know, if hearts or souls can be redeemed, well, what is the necessity of Christ coming in to history, to culture? He is incarnate bodily into the human condition to change that condition. And so in the view that the soul is isolated, maybe we could talk about, you know, one need not be saved from many of the social sins, bigotry, racism, or any outward manifestation of the inward problem. These are only indirectly the problem. And so this understanding, I think, misses the historical, socio-political sweep of biblical history. What's the Bible about? It's about a group of people that become a society, a political entity, a culture. And Paul is describing this socio-political cultural entity as now inclusive of all people, Jews and Gentiles. It's not a passage out of politics or out of culture or out of society. No, it is the creation of a new society. And this is synonymous. That Jews and Gentiles brought together is synonymous with the gospel. And so salvation through the body of Christ, the church, it's social. We get together. We do social stuff like eating, like singing. We have a new economy. We give money freely. It's not a capitalistic economy. We have a new politic, a politic of forgiveness. We have a new culture, a new cultus in which the love of Christ reigns. And so this social salvation, certainly it addresses the reconstitution of the soul, but Christianity does not skip then to the private soul. That's totally a notion totally lacking in the Bible. It does not bypass social structures, but it presumes that God's kingdom, that's the language, kingdom, a new city, a new people, first through Israel and then through the church, shapes the individual. This is no mystery to us. How do you get a, a good human being? Well, probably you put them in a good family, put them in a good place, put them in a a good society. The body of Christ is that society in which we nurture a new sort of human being. The church, the kingdom of God, is this new order of human society. And so the choice is not between social redemption or the salvation of souls. Christianity, it recognizes, oh yes, the social is very important, if not primary. But it's not Marxist. I think Marxism is just a Christian heresy. Because we understand that in Christianity, the social includes the spiritual and the divine. We understand that Marxism contrasts. It doesn't embrace God. It's atheistic. And it privileges the law. This is the great irony in Marxism. It returns to the heresy of the Jews. The Christian God, though, is social. Think about this. Trinitarian. The very being of God is a participation in a society of the Trinity. And we are invited into this new social reality. 
So salvation is not private. It certainly pertains to the private. But salvation grounds human relations in this divine society. And so to be formed by the law is the opposite of that. That's to be formed by hostility, right? By inside and outside, by Jew, Gentile, black, white, American, Mexican, you know, all of the things that are included in the hostility of the law. It's to be racist. It's to be ethnocentric. It entails exclusion, really, from ultimate universal salvation. So the city, the polis, it always contained the citizens, but most people, and this is what we need to see, that we can see in the cross how it is the force of the law comes to apply to those who are excluded from the law's protection. Christ is unprotected. The law affords protection only to those who are counted inside, those who are foreigners, strangers, those outside the law, those who are slaves, they fall under the sharp edge of the sword of the law, the policing power of the law. And so there is the justice of the law, and there is this policing effect, the dividing wall. And one way of getting at this, this inside and outside, just the very word polis, think of the American Revolution. We toppled the power of the king. And we say the law is king. It's the rule of law. Thomas Paine wrote, the law is king. But the one place that this did not affect is the law of the family, a man over his family. And so the power of the police has its origins not in the rule of law, but in the rule of the patriarchy, in the rule of the father. When we're under police power, we're more like the women, the children, the servants, and the slaves rather than the citizens who are not allowed to be part of the polis. And so it should be no surprise that the legal institutions in this country are considered by black and brown people to be inherently racist. And that race itself, you know, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, it's a socially law-constructed concept. It was in the Constitution originally. And what these people feel, it may not be what we feel, but we should be able to empathize. We should be able to understand the sense of being under the law's protection or it being outside of the law. We should be able to distinguish between the protection and the policing. And so when we look at the protests, it's occurring right now, it's occurring this morning. As Christians, we need to recognize that what is being uncovered in part is a kind of hostility between two groups of people. Jews, Gentiles, no longer applies, but between black and white. And the police as a civil force charged with deterring crime. Where does that come from? Well, it comes with this distinction in this country. Keeping the king's peace originally, that's where policing came from, we did away with the monarchy. But why policing? And the reason is mainly slavery. It was a rule of the police. In 1661, the English colony of Barbados passed its first slave law. It was revised in 1688. It decreed that Negroes 
and other slaves were wholly unqualified to be governed by the laws. There was devised and stood a set of laws for the, quote, regulating and ordering of them. And so Virginia, they adopt slave codes, their special laws. And then in 1680, there were slave patrols. South Carolina founded the Slave Owners Association. They came from Barbados. And they authorized its first slave patrol in 1702. Virginia in 17, you know, you just go right through the states. What are the police? They're slave patrols. They married with the militia, became a kind of military force, serving on patrol, and it was required that all able-bodied men, often the patrols included the same people as the militia, anyone that was available, of course, other than the people they were hunting, was going to be part of the militia. The policing in America begins from slave patrols, uh, this is a little bit strange to me. I've lived in other countries where the police, is a, it's a very different sort of force. Maybe modern American policing begins in Massachusetts. That was also specifically regulating, quelling black people. There was a black abolitionist, David Walker. He published an appeal to the colored citizens of the world and he called for violent rebellion. He said, one good black man can put to death six white men. Very dangerous idea. And Walker was killed within the year. And thereafter, there was a series of mob attacks against abolitionists, including one against the famous abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. Terrified southern slave owners then, they became frightened by Walker. And the governor of North Carolina, he writes to his senators, I beg you will lay this matter before the police. They began to use the word, but of course the police were these slave patrols. Lay the matter before the police of your town and invite their prompt attention to the necessity of arresting the circulation of Walker's book. The slave patrols became the police of North Carolina. We have a very odd view of policing in this country. Maybe it's a man named Vollmer in California, 1909. He was a military man. He had fought in the American military in the Philippines. And he specifically adapts a military understanding that he gained from the Spanish-American War. He says, I've studied military tactics and used them to good effect in rounding up crooks. After all, we're conducting a war against the enemies of society. So who were the enemies? Mobsters, bootleggers, social agitators, immigrants, and black people. And so the number of African American and Latino peoples in American jails and prisons, it exceeds the entire populations of some African, Eastern European, and Caribbean countries. There are more enslaved by this modern rule of law than there were ever slaves under Roman or Jewish law. And what is being uncovered at this moment in our country is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. There is an inherent hostility. The difference between the rule of the law and the rule of the police then, I think we feel it in this hostility. 
and where we define ourselves through the law, we will need the force of the law. We'll need the police. We'll need armies. We'll need weapons to protect ourselves from those outside the law. But that's not the church, right? Where we define ourselves as the children of God, the wall of hostility is broken down. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Jews, you don't need to protect yourselves any longer. You don't need the markers of circumcision. You don't need the marker of the food laws. You don't need the marker of your Jewishness to be part of God's people. Nor do we. And so isn't this precisely you know, what Paul is talking about? The freedom that we have in Christ it's not the freedom enacted by the laws of a country. It's not the freedom enacted by the armies or the Constitution. The freedom of Christ is quite distinct from the freedoms that nations can give. They will always give a limited freedom, not an egalitarian freedom. Paul says neither male nor female. Think here of the old Greek polis. Because these were legal distinctions. There will be no Jew nor Greek. There will be no slave nor free in the church. It's a rejection of the categories of the law. Of having the law define us. Neither American or Russian. Neither black. You know, we could just go on and on. These may be the realities of the law of nations, of countries but they are not the realities that define us. And so Paul describes a new freedom. This is his theme in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Corinthians. The one who joins himself to Christ, Paul says, is freed from the law through the Spirit. The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this glorifying, you know, of a servitude, think here, because that's, we've all become slaves, we've all become servants, we've all taken up the heavy burden of the cross, but actually the burden is not so heavy. And you know what the cross displaces? The burden of the law that put Christ on the cross. We don't do identity in that way. My yoke is light. My burden is easy. Take up your cross. And while there is a reorientation to the law in Christ, we recognize that the law is not everything. The law does not constrain us or compel us or identify us. We are no longer left with the hostility of the law, but we have, you know, what happens with the suspension of the law is the enabling of love that is the new law, the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.